Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello. Welcome, Uh, everybody, to Rights for Women Live for the very first time. And my guest here is Fiona McIntosh. I'm really excited to be chatting to Fiona about her brand-new book, The Spy's Wife, which we're going to have lots of discussion about. So, Fiona, welcome to Rights for Women Convo Couch. Lovely. Lovely to be here with you. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to do a little bit of an intro. I'm pretty sure everybody out there, or maybe everybody out there knows who you are, but just just to fill everybody in with a bit of your background, Fiona is a best-selling Australian author of, as far as I can tell, Fiona, looking at your website, 39 books. Does that sound correct? The 40th. So it's, okay, it's... 40. Yeah, great. Fiona's <laughs> currently known for historical fiction titles probably at the moment, but Fiona also writes crime, fantasy for both adults and children, and Time Slip, I noticed, on your website as well. And she's also penned at least one non-fiction title that I know of, How to Write a Blockbuster, isn't it? How to Write Your Blockbuster, yeah. How to Write Your Blockbuster, which I'm going to actually ask you about too because we've got loads of writers tuning in tonight. Fiona did spend many years in PR, sales and marketing in the travel industry, and your very first attempt, Fiona, at fiction writing won the notice of a global publisher and you've been writing fiction ever since. Is that correct? That's absolutely how it happened. It was very much the fairy tale, and I know people don't like to hear it, but I, I always say, well, look, if it can happen for me, it can happen for you. You know, it just was one of those things. It wasn't luck. It was just timing. I, I don't think it was so much luck as just great timing, hitting the editor's desk in the right moment when she was looking for exactly that. And, you know, if you can be cunning about how you pitch, it can be achieved. Oh, it's so inspiring. Well, Fiona is currently at her uh, beautiful place in South Australia on her property with her menagerie of animals. We've just been chatting about her new beehive and her new puppy, Rosie, who joins her other two dogs. And Fiona is also, Fiona also runs fantastic masterclasses for writers. And I know that there's quite a few writers going to be listening and tuning in tonight who've either taken part in those masterclasses or would love to. Good. yeah, for sure. Fiona, when you're not at home in Adelaide doing all the things you do there, you do normally in, in normal life spend a good chunk of time overseas researching yeah. your historical novels. But I'm really going to really interested in how you went about researching The Spice Wife because I imagine it's not in the usual style. And this is actually the second time that you've been on Rights for Women because I chatted to you a, a little while back for The Champagne War. Yes. Now, uh, you couldn't get two more different uh, scenarios for the actual research. I mean, I started the same, in the same way. So around about 
you know, very early 2019, I was reading an absolute pilot book, which was getting me educated, making me understand the time. I'd already decided that I was going to write this story about, you know, spies during the 1930s, a spy in Britain, who is a German and a spy in Germany, who's a who's uh, from England. And I, I knew that much about the story, but not much else. And so I needed to read about the times and get the political landscape and the, the fashions and the food and the transport, not just on the ground in Britain, but on the ground in Germany. Where were they with all at the same level with all the same things? So once I felt I was, it was exploding with all this information, then I moved to locations. I need to put my feet on the ground of mm. my character. And that's something uh, I take very seriously and, you know, it's, it's vital to me in feeling the story because a lot of – I don't plan my stories at all, so I need the story to come and find me. So th at this point, everything was identical for both, both books. In 2019, I, was, I went to Yorkshire and gathered up all the North Yorkshire scenes for the story, which is essentially – the first part of the book, I, I sort of knew it was going to begin there. And so I thought, well, let's go and find where my main character is going to live. Who is she? Maybe she she too will come and find me. And she did and led me to Levisham Railway Station. And so all of that was set up and wonderful. Um, and then I returned to Europe in 2020 uh, towards the end of February and thought, great, now I'll do Germany. And I had this huge itinerary, but you know, we managed to do Berlin and Stuttgart and Munich, very importantly. I dipped into Nuremberg thinking maybe I'll need Nuremberg in this story. But then we we got the news of COVID and the government was saying, if you don't need to be overseas, get yourselves home. And so we did. And I said to him, no, don't worry, I'll come back. I, I always come back. And usually I do. The Champagne War took four trips to France and I figured mm -hmm. I'd need to go back to Germany at least one other time and maybe a third time. But I thought, that's okay. I've got, I've got this. I I've sort of can probably get the arc of the story down now and I'll put all those layers in when I go back. <laughs> well, that was that, you know, got home yeah. in the nick of time and I had to rely on the material I had. And it's, it's really fortunate that I seem to have gathered up sufficient material that the story feels quite rich in its layers, but I did, just didn't have the luxury to do what I did for the war. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it definitely shows that you were in those places, Fiona. I'm reading, I've almost finished the book I was telling you before we started recording, and I'm absolutely loving it. I've actually been reading it on both in print and listening to it on audio, just so I can you know, get, get the feel for both and really enjoying the audio as well. Thank you. She's a lovely narrator, actually. Narrated mm. all my stories. So we're lucky enough as writers, you're given a choice. And I listened to this particular narrator. I listened to about four and I felt that she represented my characters really well. And so she's been with us right the way through all of the historical novels and seems to be doing a really good job. Fantastic. I'll just pause there a little minute. We have got a few uh, comments and I'll just let everybody know that I will be putting comments up on intermittently throughout the, the chat I have with Fiona. And then the last, we're going to go for about 40 minutes, hopefully, and the last 15 minutes or so, if you've got any specific questions for Fiona, pop them up into the comments and, and Fiona can address them there.
And Fiona, I've, I've had a, a comment there from Christine Patman. She's just finished The Spice Wife, loved it. She's read most of your books and she's loved them all and loves the, loves your writing. Thank you, Christine. That's You just, um, you know, as a writer, you spend so much time in isolation with the story and in your head with the characters that you, you never forget that there's a reader on the end of it, but it's a glorious reward when you can meet those readers or hear from those readers and you realise that your story has touched a wide audience and pleased a wide audience. So it, thank you. Yeah, for sure. So we've got hello from Jessie and Michelle says that colour looks fantastic on you, Fiona. I'm uh, channeling Evie for all of you because Evie wears scarlet on the cover and I thought I really must wear a red dress. It took me forever to find this red dress. But um, anyway. <laughs> no, it blends in beautifully with your books and your poster in the background. But before we go any further, for people who haven't read The Spice Wife, and I'm sure there's a few listening who haven't, could you tell us what the story's about? Right, well, without trying to spoil anything, uh, this is a fish-out-of-water story, which is my favourite kind of story. Evie comes from a sleepy hollow. She's not ambitious. She has no aspirations. She's a young widow, and all she wants is a quiet life, and she loves the life she has. And then she meets a gentleman, a traveller on the train, and from the moment she meets, her life is catapulted onto a new axis, you could say, and suddenly she's on, I want to say a world stage. It is a world stage, but it's the European stage. And everything Evie does now matters. She's cornered into agreeing to do something on behalf of the British government. And it's very unfair. She's not trained for it. She's not equipped for it. But lives are at stake. And they, they use that as a sort of a blackmail. And they push her into, well, the title gives it away, into spying for Britain in Germany during the 1930s. And look, it turns into this romping, stomping adventure. I, I sort of hoped it would. That's what I set out to try and achieve. And I'm I'm absolutely thrilled. This is my second favorite uh, of all the historical novels I've written. And I didn't know that when I set out, I sort of had no real feel for the story, but it just came together. And it's quite an addictive read. And it's one of those- It is. You can just, and I'm very pleased, it sort of keeps you up because it moves rather fast. And my editor's always saying, give the reader a chance to breathe, you know, give them a place to, <laughs> you know, go to the bathroom or go and pick up their children or, you know, deal with their their pets or whatever. But this particular story, I, there's no real break. It just keeps powering. So it was fun. It's lovely. It's a, it's a great romp of a story. It is. It has a cracking pace and Evie is such a great character. I'm really curious to know, so Fiona, you did say that you don't plan your stories. You just sit down, you get your basic idea and then you just write. So can you give us a little bit of insight into how Evie's character developed for you? Is she based on anyone like in real life? Because there are, of course, like quite a lot of real life figures in the book because of the time period where it is set. And just how did Evie develop for you as a character? Look, she's not based on anyone, but I will say she grew out of a character from the favourite book I've ever written, which is called The Pearl Thief. There's a character in there called Katerina, who is the, the heroine of the story. But this is a woman who is a bit older than Evie. She's very broken. She's incredibly damaged. She's incredibly fragile. 
and the trauma that, it, that was foisted on her as a very young girl and what she had to witness and what she had to go through has haunted her, quite obviously, all of her life. And we meet her at 36 and she's become this quite brittle character who's cold to others. But that's part of her just barely holding herself together. And she's been on the run for all that time. So I loved that character, particularly because she was so brave. She has to turn around and face her nemesis. And she's so brave because this particular person has frightened her since a little girl. So he's really the monster in her life. And I loved her bravery. And I, I knew I needed Evie to be very brave because she's not equipped for what she's being flung into. And mm. because she's got no other skills other than being a, a pretty woman, but the cunning of a woman, and I keep talking about this when I'm out and about with people, women are inherently cunning. We have cunning. You know, if we need our husbands to do something or our boyfriends or partners, we, we are sensible enough to come at it obliquely and not just demand. <laughs> no, we come at it at very, very true. like a border collie angle when we're rounding up sheep. So, you know, you come in like this, by the time you've finished, um, the person in your life thinks it's their idea and you think, oh, that's marvellous, you know. So I think women are inherently, cunning is probably a, a negative word, but I do mean it with affection, you know, sort of smarts. We've got those smarts to, mm, uh, mm. to also uh, compartmentalise very well. So we can, if we, anyone who's been a mother knows you're across a million and one things at once, whether it's homework or, you know, it's library book day or it's girl coin day or, you know, it's plain clothes day because woe betide if you get it wrong, your children will punish you. So that's what Evie brings to her to her spying life. She brings just the qualities of being a woman and she has to really become someone she isn't. And I mm. love bravery about her because she's alone in this and it's fear that's driving her. Because if she's found out, there'll be executions. There'll be no trial or questions. There'll just be an execution around the back of a building. So um, mm. There are a few things from her life in Yorkshire that do not fully equip her but help her along the way, I think, with her, the, the, task that, the tasks she has to face in Germany when she does go there. And that's not a spoiler because, you know, as you said, the spy's wife, we know she, go, we know she goes to Germany. There are a few things, though. She's very honest, isn't she? She's very upfront with people. And she has a few other qualities, I think, that do equip her for, for what she's about to, to do. Don't you agree? Oh, definitely. Do you want me to talk about them or are we holding yeah. back? Okay. Yeah, no, no, so, let's talk about them, obviously without spoilers, but, you know, you can she's do a, that. She's a political animal. She reads the paper every day with her father because she's almost fulfilling the role of mother and wife, mother to her younger sister, wife to her father, because she's the eldest daughter and he's got no one. And so she shares the newspaper and the daily news on the wireless with him. The year is 1936 and she's totally up with what is happening in London, what's happening over in Berlin, what's happening across Europe. And that actually um, makes her quite smart when she's making conversation with, with people in this new elevated role that she has to mm. take on. The other skill she's got is her frankness and her directness. And she doesn't pull her punches. And when she comes up against, there's a couple of real villains in this story, but one in particular mm. She is like the counterbalance to that villain and she has to sort of 
match this villain, her honesty, and, and it turns into sarcasm and clever wordage. She has to match the cruelty of this person. Mm. So she's got smarts. She's got a very quick mind. I always give her that. Her, her fast-thinking mind has saved her in a couple of very dangerous situations. And finally, and I don't think this spoils too much, because she used to play a game with her sister on the railway station, we're in the age of steam now. Very noisy. I don't know if you've ever heard a steam train passing mm. by. Very noisy business. And so she's learned to communicate with us by lip reading. And they just think it's just a funny little thing they've done since they were children. But, of course, they've never lost the skill. And Evie doesn't realise how powerful that little talent of hers um, might be in a certain situation. And so... I think we'll leave it at that. She she has yeah. no yeah. she can't strap on. She's not Jason Bourne or you know, but she certainly goes for it in the story. I, I don't know if you're at that that part yet, but uh, there's a very exciting uh, couple of scenes coming up towards the end of the book, and she really does have to be heroic. I mean, I couldn't mm. but even writing it and thinking, how on earth are you going to get out of this? You know, you're going deeper into the dragon's den. How are you going yeah. to pull this? So I'm intrigued by my the, the characters when they they go off, they do their own thing, and I think, okay, it's your fault. You're there. You work it out. <laughs> I loved that little device of her lip reading. I thought that was fantastic. And as you say, it, it makes for some really interesting situations, you know, as the plot unravels. But I'm really yeah. interested too, Fiona, in you were saying, you know, that your characters do these things that surprise you. Were there were there quite a few things in this story that the characters did that, that did surprise you when you got to them? There's a couple of twists in the story and I certainly didn't see the second one coming. Sometimes you can feel it coming on you think, oh, okay, that, that, that's clever, that's good for the reader. But the, the second one I didn't see coming, sort of horrified by what was actually taking place. And mm. I, it's not that I was losing control because I never feel I am in control, but I thought I, I was so sad. I just thought, oh, you know, how, how can I do this? How is this happening that the reader is having to face this? But, uh, you know... I always hand myself over to the characters and I think yep. those surprises are necessary and they keep me really interested in my project. I think if I was a plotter, and there's nothing wrong with being a, a plotter, but if I was, I think I would lose interest much faster in my own manuscript than I do now because I'm as intrigued as a reader when I come in each morning and think, okay, what are they going to do with me today? You know, where are we going? What are we up to? And I've written all 40 books that way. So it works for me. It, it won't work for everyone. And I wouldn't suggest anyone thinks, right, stuff it. I'm not going to do any plans. I'm just going to be what I call a free faller. I feel like I'm jumping mm. out of a without a parachute. But I'm comfy in that. I'm, I'm confident that this works for me and that my characters will save me. So always yeah. do. Yeah, I love that. And and like you say, everybody develops their own style, don't they, you know, as writers? And some yeah. people are more free-fallers than others and some are more plotters than others. And the best the best way to be is somewhere in the middle, if you can, that you've got a bit of an idea and but you're prepared to see where the story will lead you because the best mm. surprises come when you go down those pathways with your characters that you don't see coming. 
some of the best surprises and best characters and best storylines await you down there. But you have to know when you, if you're, and I'm talking to the writers now, you have to know when you've gone down one of these little pathways to back up if it's not working. And you've just got to say to yourself, okay, I've lost that day of work, but that's okay. I'm glad I explored it. So it's, it just takes confidence, really. Mm-hmm. We have got a couple of questions have come up, Fiona, so we might address those now and then we'll, I'll come back to the ones that I've got for you. There are a couple I come back to, but the lovely Joanna Nell has asked, how do you know when a book is finished, Fiona? That is such an interesting question, Joanne, because uh, it's sort of like how long is a piece of string? But I think, again, this is just experience now on my side from writing so many books. What tends to happen, you know, the shape of a book is it starts here and then it widens out for a while. And then, you know, you need to actually start narrowing it down and bringing it to the, the climax of the story. And that happens quite naturally for me now. I, it, it just happens. I don't have to work at it. I don't have to look for mm. it. All my characters seem to obey the rules and think, okay, it's time to start either dying or walking off the page or whatever. <laughs> and the story starts to narrow down. And I can feel it happening. You know, as I'm writing, I can feel that narrowing coming in. I, I sense that we're coming towards the end of the story. And It's almost you know, like muscle memory, isn't it? It absolutely is. Mm. And it's, it's just experience talking now. And I think I got a very good training through all my fantasy writing. I wrote, you know, 14 big fantasy books. And, you know, you learn to end on a cliffhanger and you learn to bring it to that point but leave everybody gasping for the next volume. And that was the really good training. And so I, I knew how to feel that shape of a book coming on. And that's what I write to. And it is. It's just, mm. the, you know, it's just that knowledge saying it's time. Characters will fall in line. We have another question, Fiona, before we get back to, to talking a bit more about Evie. I've just started reading the book that's from Karen. Can you talk about the cover, please? It's such a stunning design, which it, it absolutely is. Thank you, Karen. I won't talk about the dozens that I didn't see. Penguin Random House is my publisher and they know that I'm I, I'm quite, what's the word, I'm very invested in my own covers and I've never been a really big fan of the woman's big face on a book because that tends to talk about too much romance to me. I want my mm. stories to be more adventurous and so I've been you know, always we, we sort of lock horns and, I, I you know, we, we push against each other. But the way the sales go, I can't deny the fact that the covers have been working and we've just put out a whole new range of covers that have no faces on them. But when we were getting ready for The Spy's Wife, they, my publisher, this is the person, the publisher, rejected so many. She said, oh, she won't go for that. No, take that away. Oh, my gosh, don't let her even get close to that. And she said, just rejected loads. And then they finally came to me with four. And one of them, the whole editorial team and the publishing team, really liked. And they presented it to me with a ta-da. And unfortunately, they my face fell, you know, because oh. I just... I just didn't love it. I just didn't respond as I was supposed to respond. And so I started explaining to them where I felt it wasn't hitting the mark. And they were like, right, back to the drawing board. And the next one they showed me was this one. And it was like that. I just said, there she is. There's right. Evie. 
There she is. Um, and I fell in love with it. And they were just so excited. And they said, this is what we want. We want our author this excited. And I said, I know it's a woman's face. I know it's all those things. But look at that blue. And look it's at that gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, it's really, the, it's a powerful cover. And it spoke to me. And the words, the spy's wife glinting in gold out of that book. Mm. So it works. You know, it works. And so that's how it comes together. But there's a year's work right now. My editor is briefing in the graphics team for next year's book because she already yeah. knows. I've already given her the manuscript. She already knows what she thinks should be on the cover. So I'll start seeing covers from about, I don't know, March, April. Okay. Yep. Yep. Brilliant. We have got a question from Jesse, but I'm just going to hold off on that one because it ties in nicely with the next thing I wanted to ask you, Fiona, and that's about writing a book set during World War II, which obviously, as we know, is such a difficult time period and so much trauma, you know, occurred that that the world is is well aware of. And, and of course, there's many things that we're not aware of. But how did you find that balance between, you know, for instance, in which historical figures to include, you know, real life people in the story and how far to go with some of those events that you were dealing with as part of that time period? Well, you know, that's my job. That's what I do. If I'm writing historical fiction, I, I do need real people walking into the pages because it's exciting and it really sets the, not the tone but the atmosphere and the world feels real um, for the reader when they enter it, if there are people they recognise and shops they recognise and streets they know about and places they're familiar with. So how far do you go? This is the furthest I've ever pushed it, I think. I know that I wanted, what, the time is 1936, so we're not actually in a war. And that was deliberate. We didn't want war because mm. we, we had just emerged from bushfires in Australia and we were moving into COVID and we were in lockdown when I started this. The whole country was in lockdown and the world was in meltdown when I started this book. And I thought, my gosh, there's no way we're going to write a war story. It has to be, I have to set it well before the war in a cheerful time. So I deliberately chose summer and I wanted all the women in summer frocks and families and picnics and eating ice cream. And I needed it to be a very jolly uh, setting. So the only people who are feeling tense or worried, Max and Evie in the story, because only yeah. they know what's going on. And only the reader, not even Max and Evie, only the reader knows what is coming in three years' time. So That's true. Yeah. In the is oblivious. They have no idea that war's coming. Mm. And they all take the um, attitude, all of them, that Germany wouldn't do this again. It definitely wouldn't do it again. No, no, no. They would never be that stupid to start another world, another war in Europe. So people were sort of optimistic that this was saber rattling that was going on in Germany, and that's one of the reasons that she's there is to test and get get a real sense of what actually is the agenda here with the Nazi ideology. We don't like it, but what is going on? Um, and I really wanted Hitler to be in the pages somewhere, but I didn't want him to be on a podium shouting and banging his mm. fist and yelling his nastiness. I, actually, I remember saying to my editor, you know, I'd love him in civvies and sort of, you know, out with his friends and having a bit of a giggle. And she said, 
I dare you to do it. You can, <laughs> if anyone can do it, you can do it. She said, go on, do it. And I said, I'll do it. I can do it. And so I found Hitler's favourite uh, coffee shop, his favourite place he liked to go. Munich was his playground. So Munich is where I set most of the book. It's where he went to relax. It's where he had his home. It's where he met his friends. He never wore uniform. And he demanded that if he was seen in public, that he wasn't, people didn't get up and clap or salute him or anything. If he's in civvies, he did not want attention. So it was quite strict. If he's in uniform, that's different. When he's in civvies, mm. don't notice me, don't make a fuss. And so I have Evie, and I don't think this spoils anything. She is also in, by chance, that same cafe, the Carlton Tea Rooms, and their eyes, their, their gazes meet, you know, mm. and amazing moment in the story i mean i when i finished it is i stood up and punched the air because i knew i'd done it (laughs) i pulled it off i hadn't i hadn't overworked it i hadn't made it too blown you know it was just this very subtle meeting of two people that just otherwise could have missed each other but her terror is my gosh it's you you know and if only you knew what i'm up to and he's just innocently sort of looking at her. And it's just quite chilling. The whole thing is quite it chilling. It is. Yeah. And I loved that we could we could have that. There are other people from history in, in the story as well. And I show them in all their glorious evilness, if that is such a word. People like Julius Stryker. But then there yeah. are also other people who, quite famous people for different reasons, who were quite happy to take projects from the Nazis, and there were plenty of them. I mean, were they turning a blind eye? Were they fully paid up party members? Who knows? I Mm. doubt it. They were certainly getting rich on um, government contracts, and I think people were interesting, yeah. Yeah, like you say, Fiona, I think it's really interesting that as readers we're reading it, of course, knowing a lot more than what the characters know about what's to come. And I think that really adds to the tension and suspense of the story too because we know what Hitler and his henchmen were capable of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and fabulous scene. I love that scene. It's so good. Yes, I, yeah. I'm very proud of that because it's small and short and you could almost miss it, and I love that it's that mm. subtle. Mm. I must say, I did a, I did sort of draw breath quite literally when I realised who it was that w- that yeah. was in the cafe with her. Yeah, well, I, um, I knew I was going to do it, but I, I thought, where is she? Where is she going to? How is this going to happen? And it really brought delight the way it happened for me because it's a surprise. It's always a surprise. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So just a couple of, of comments that we have said that are oh, commenting on the cover, the diagonal shape of, you know, the diagonal shape and her peeking out of the train is really eye-catching. So, yeah, definitely. And and the question that Jessie had, which links to, I think, what I was just asking you is, what do you like most about writing historical fiction? Well, that's quite easy. I love to be educated myself and enriched. Every time I've written one of these historical novels, I feel newly, I, I know something about something. I suddenly know something, you know, the chocolate tin taught me about chocolate. The perfumer's secret taught me how to make perfume. I went to the world capital of perfume in France, which is Grasse, and I sat down with a top perfumer and I learned how to make perfume and then I used that perfume in the story. So it's a, 
it's a glorious gift to myself in a way. The, the tea gardens, I went to Darjeeling in mm. um, the top of, you know, I was in the Himalayas and I was plucking tea with these wonderful women who couldn't speak a word of English and it didn't matter because we could communicate. Um, and they were teaching me, and it was great fun to learn how to to how to pluck tea, how to twist it oh, off. Amazing. So and Morocco for the last dance, and Turkey for Nightingale. I mean, I get to travel, and I get to learn about cultures, food, traditional ways. I get to talk to the people of that land. So I just feel fully enriched by it that I wouldn't feel, or I don't feel, perhaps when I'm writing my crimes. I love writing. I love writing Jack Hawksworth, but he's sort of set in today's more or less today, and so I'm not feeling quite that same nostalgic trip, you know, that I take mm. from my history books. Yeah, yeah. And related to that, Penelope Janu has asked. She said she loves the book Fiona, and actually, she was born in a maternity nursing home on the Yorkshire Moor. Oh my gosh, brilliant. I wish she'd said on the moor. That would have been really. <laughs> and Penn has also asked, I think you addressed this a little earlier, Fiona, but did you visit all the locations for this book or had you been to them before? No, listen, this is how I roll. This is for all the writers. I don't, it doesn't matter that I've been to Paris a gazillion times in my life, um, and I have, because I've been in traveling since I was 20. If I've got a story that has Paris in it, I go to Paris for that story because I wear a particular lens for that story. And I think it's vital. It's no good writing a story fully from memory just because you've been to London. It doesn't qualify you to write a novel about London from memory. It will never have the richness or the texture or the atmosphere that you could achieve if you go to London for mm. your story, deliberately for your story. And that applies for everything. If you're writing about your own hometown, walk those streets of your characters and start to notice all the stuff that you just don't notice. You know, every day you'll suddenly notice a tree that you didn't really realise was there or the, mm. the in the pavement that you don't know are there. You wear a different lens and I, I have a, it's a bit of a thing of mine and all my masterclasses get caned over this, that if you're going to write a set of story overseas, it can't be done from memory. You've got to go. And so every one of my books, I just walk those streets wherever they are in the world or I don't set it there or I don't have that. I went to Nuremberg for this story and I didn't use it. I didn't need it. I went to Lithuania for this story because I thought maybe my character needs to go into Eastern Europe. She might have to travel with her husband, but I had more than enough stories. So Lithuania, it's not wasted, but it, the, the work was done. The due diligence yeah. was, like, was done and it can come yeah. into another story if I need it. But yeah, I do get yeah. it. So you're really in your character's skin in that place where the story is yeah. set. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's important. I'm doing this. So I know people think that's a great way to travel, but I'm doing it for the reader so that when the reader enters those pages, it feels real. They may have been to that place and then they'll sort of test it that I'm getting it right. Or they may dream of going to that place, in which case I need to make it really sing 
to make them want to go. Or they've read a lot about that place. Most people think they know London, but I show them a different side of London. I'm always going to new locations in London for my stories. And as Effie says, it has been difficult to leave Australia. So obviously the last couple of years have been a challenge, but hopefully 2022. Well, I've written for next year, I've written a an all-Australian story. It's the first oh. time I've written that. In, you know, in my 40th book is an Australian story and it's right. uh, terrifying. Yep, absolutely terrifying because I'm used to, <laughs> you know, jetting off and whizzing around and I feel very comfortable on the other side of the world. I, you know, I was born on the other side of the yeah. world. It feels very easy. I feel very daunted writing about Australia. Even though I've lived here for 40 years, I feel very daunted by it. And that's not such a bad thing. I actually think at this stage of my career, being challenged is a very good Mm. thing. Mm. Uh, Will keep me fresh and keep me on my toes and keep me just off balance a bit. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, the 2023 book will be Australian as well because I work two to three years out. So uh, I'm doing research now for 2023. Great. That's exciting. Just keep the questions coming. If people are out there listening in, we have got time for a few more questions for Fiona. But I also wanted to ask you, Fiona, obviously there's a lot of intrigue and espionage and mystery and tension in the book to do with the the whole spying issue. But it's also a love story, isn't it? And Max, of course, is Evie's husband. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship and how you see that as part of the plot? Look, I would never write a book not even a crime without a love story. There has to be a love story because we're human and we are all about relationships. So I think love stories are important. Certainly there must be a romantic connection, I think, and definitely in my books. But I don't want to be labelled a romance writer and, you know, I get very sniffy about that sort of thing. Not because I mind romantic writers. I think they're brilliant, you know, but... I don't want, my books are multi-layered with adventure and, you know, a richness in the history and they take, you know, three solid years of work. So there's a lot more going into my books than just the love story. Plus, I'm very happy to kill off one of the main characters and no good love story apart from, you know, a good, you know, as category romance, you wouldn't be allowed to kill off one of the main characters I don't think you need you need them to come together and be pulled apart and not be allowed to be mm. together ultimately they need to be together that's what category romance is about well I'm not writing that because I'll gladly kill one of them or hurt them or you know and and I have and I will and I get I get a lot of this from my editor he says, no no you're not killing you're not getting rid of so and she was very firm about this one, that we're all suffering. And she said, it's such a tense story. You know, just just allow us to have this lovely romance through these two. Yes, yeah, so Max is very confused. He's trapped, you could say. He's a, he's a great guy, but he's trapped into doing something he doesn't want to do. And then he's trapped again into doing something that he doesn't want his wife to do. Mm. And so he's cornered all the way through this book. This poor guy is cornered. He never, there's no break for him all the way through. And a lot of the tension is coming from him. Whereas Evie, 
you know, she's got something to do and she's all guns blazing and a lot of the fear that is beginning to build up in this story is actually emanating from Max. And I think that's that's quite subtle and quite nice. It's a great role for a woman, this book. It's lovely to see a woman, um, and I'm no feminist, but it's just lovely to see this woman taking control and saying, you know, and he is having to take a step back while she does what she does, and he is the one who is in all sorts of panic and worry for what is going on. And they are... Mm. They are a very lovely couple. I mean, I know when I first started writing it, I didn't know whether there was going to be a lot of friction between them and it started that way. And then I had a look at it and I thought, actually, no, I just, I think it's the, I think it's the love that will at least give Evie the confidence to do what she's about to do. So mm. I didn't need more with anyone, you know. So it's, it's interesting yeah. as the story morphs along. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a really, I mean, we can't give spoilers, obviously. If you haven't read the book, you need to do that and find out. But it's it's quite a complex relationship too because of the way they meet and the situation that they're both in and then what happens as they are, you know, as their relationship develops in Germany. So it's a really interesting dynamic, I think, between the two. And it's complicated by the fact that you cannot apply your own sensibility of 2021 Um People, this is 1936, and it was absolutely unacceptable in a way what Evie's doing. Um, and Max is trapped by, you know, social norms. I mean, he's liberal, he's very liberally minded, but they've mm. got to be careful that they present as a very traditional couple. Um, and we're in Germany now, where which is very suddenly conservative, very suddenly right wing. You know, everybody's watching each other and very suspicious. And so they have to present as a very normal husband and wife. And meanwhile, he's terrified at what his wife's up to, herself being thrown into. So he's yeah. not hes not being deliberately traditionalist. He's trying to protect their secrecy and their cover, so to speak. So it is complicated. Yes. Yeah, it is, which is great, makes it even better. We've got a question from Michelle Barraclough. Uh, Fiona, I know you don't plan. What happens when you sit down to write a scene? What happens? It just it just comes. You know, I'm so well trained in this now. My fingertips hit the keyboard and I get going. I'm in a hurry to do everything. I've always been in a hurry. I raise my children in a hurry. I, you know, I eat fast. I I do everything rather quickly and I write books rather fast as well. So I can usually, um, once I've got all the research done, I can usually finish a book in about, well, I used to do it in about 12 weeks. I'm now a lot kinder to myself and give myself 16 to 17 weeks. These books are demanding more. They're mm. taking from me and they're they're demanding more there's greater anticipation each book gets more scary because there's more resting on it so I didn't have time to sit down and think hmm, what am I going to write about today I just sit down and it happens it just I just start writing and whatever mood I'm in is what is going to happen in that session of writing and I don't mm. trash writing I don't trash it. A lot of people say, oh, do you often write yourself and, and realise, you know, oh, that's not working, so you just get rid of that 50,000 words. And I think, don't be daft. I'm on a deadline here. <laughs> I, you know, I've got people waiting on the other end of this. No, I don't trash 50,000 words. I make them work. So 
I'm I'm ruthless. I'm quite happy once we come to editing. I'm quite happy for the editor to say, right, we've got to cut those fifty thousand words, and you've got to write a fresh thirty thousand. Not that she's ever said that, but if she did, it's no problem. I will do that. But I only worry about that come the moment of editing. In when I'm sitting down, I'm writing and I'm writing. You know, a constant flow. It's very organic, and I never read what I wrote yesterday. Never. Okay. I don't I don't even know what is stretching out behind me. If you ask me, what did I write today? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you because I've written it. It's done. Tomorrow's words will arrive tomorrow morning for me. You know, I've just got to love get that. On. Yeah. You just keep moving forward with the story. Forward and that's how you. I can write really quickly. It's mm. the people who mistake, the writers out there who think, I'll just, I'll just get in the mood. I'll just read what I wrote yesterday. And then suddenly you're trapped. You're trapped in tinkering and you're doing this and you're saying to yourself, oh, this is rubbish. Or even worse, oh, this is glorious. I'm just going to read it again because it's so good. And you've missed your, you've missed the window of that creative moment. I mean, you can mm. only read it for about, I think, two solid hours. You can, you know, I'm really on form. If I push into a third hour, you know, you'll get you. You're beginning to lose. It's getting diluted. So I give myself a maximum of three hours, and I can usually get my writing done in two. And sometimes I can get it done in one. You know, I can just get my whole day's words done in one hour, and then I'm off yep. going with cupcakes and baking, and you know, I'm free. I'm free. Doing all those other wonderful things oh, that you do. Oh, yeah. I've <laughs> done so I can have a life. I love that, and don't forget. Any more questions, put them up. We are going to start winding down fairly soon so we don't take up too much of Fiona's time. So if anyone out there has any more questions for Fiona, make sure you type them up for us. But, Fiona, we have been talking a little bit about writing and that whole skill and, you know, how you go about doing your writing. You do run your masterclasses. Could you maybe give us some, what would be your top tip or tips for two levels of writers, I'm thinking, maybe aspiring writers who haven't yet had anything published but then also maybe something for mid-career authors who, you know, have had a few books out and and looking sort of for the advice for that long haul. What would you say to both those groups? Oh, well, the aspiring writers, I think you've just got to stop talking about it. A lot of aspiring writers are part of book groups and writing groups and, you know, I'm doing my so many thousand words in this month. I'm, and then they start talking about agents and publishers and, and they haven't yet written a manuscript you know it's just a lot of jabber sit down and write that manuscript and start finishing every project you start doesn't matter if you're not loving it we don't always love what we're writing but you have to understand that if you're going to be successful uh, and you're going to be a commercial fiction writer you've got to push through and finish your um, uh, manuscript and meet that deadline because no one likes a flaky writer People who don't deliver the deadline, they just create chaos down the line for a lot of people. A publisher just wants you on that lovely treadmill, one book a year, please, and make sure um, it's exactly what you said you're going to write. It's got all the, because we would have, they would have looked at the story arc and signed off on it and thought, this sounds great. You know, this is brilliant. You know, exactly what we need at the moment. So it's about making sure you finish your projects and learning from them. You might finish one and think, okay, that's interesting. I realise that I've written 150,000 words and I really only need 100,000. So I need to narrow it down 
a lot sooner. You really do learn on your early manuscripts. My apprenticeship was done publicly, so I had to learn on the fly, on the job, which I don't wish on anyone. But look, if you're lucky enough to get a contract from the get-go, excellent, take it, get going sort of thing. But you've got to start, stop talking about it. Stop, by all means, daydream about, you know, the first time your script is it's picked up to be a movie, daydream about those things, but get on with the job of finishing a manuscript. Now, and I also think it pays to have a guide, a professional guide. That's what the masterclass is about. I can think of myself as a teacher. I think of myself as a guide. But I've got 20 years of experience of writing commercial fiction at a very high level, but I also have a previous 20 years of experience of self-employment, running a business, and understanding what it is to professional, what it is to run a business, because that's what you're doing, um, and you're self-employed. So it's it's all you may keep a day job for a while, but your aim is obviously to be a full-time novelist, and takes and you have to you really have to embrace that. And it isn't a bad thing to have a guide, but you need someone with a track record. I'm I'm troubled by lots of people who run, you know, writing courses, but they haven't actually they're not out there published in the top 10 Mm. doing this every day to know what that poor writer is facing you know you have to know what it is you have to be able to feel what that new writer is facing now for the middle writers for those who've maybe had a couple of books published and wondering you know i it's time to get out of i don't know rural romance and whatever i think the main thing I would say to you is be be bold, you know, be brave. You've got to you've got to climb out of the comfort zone because if you haven't been noticed in a big way yet, then you're just in a holding pattern and you need to just be bold and try something different. There's nothing to be lost by it. But if a publisher wants you in that slipstream, you need to keep delivering into that slipstream. If that's what mm. you've been you know, if that's what you've been uh, commissioned, acquired to do, you've been acquired to write, let's say, crime, there's no point jumping around saying, oh, I've got a children's book and I've got this fabulous idea for some contemporary women's fiction and I've got a lovely self-help book. They're just going to push that big red button on their desk and say, you know, you know, panic, we don't, we don't need this. You really need to stay in a slipstream for a while and keep delivering mm. very well, very professionally into that. And building your audience, that's what it's all about. Build your audience so you learn how to market to that audience and know who your audience is. It might surprise you who the audience actually is. And then be bold, you know, like I'm beginning to brave now. I'm beginning to really push things. It's taken me, I've formulated my audience. I know exactly what I'm writing. I know how to do it. I don't spook myself. I don't second guess myself. But now I'm being brave and I'm thinking, go bigger, go bolder, try that, Mm. go you know. So we all do it. But if you're in that mid list, then that's your moment is to start looking ahead at, you know, where can, where can you, where can you push yourself into to be noticed? Mm. Mm. I love that. Thank you, Fiona. That's great advice. We are getting to the point where we've been going for nearly an hour. It's, I can't believe that because we've barely scratched the surface. Karen said, thank you. This has been another interesting and entertaining session. 
But just before we go, you did mention that you uh, have the next two books coming up set in Australia. Can you tell us any more about them or are they still, you know, the next one's still a bit more under wraps? No, in fact, the next three books I've just realised. I was telling you a fib. So the next okay. thing I'm going, I've finished the 2022 novel, um, which is set in South Australia because I started, you know, I had to think about pitching. I mean, the publisher said, so Fiona, what have we got for 2022? And we were in lockdown. It was sort of April and 2020. And I said, well, it's going to have to be an Australian story. But the borders were all closed and I couldn't get to Tasmania or Queensland or New South Wales. So I had to really uh, decide that I needed to do it from my own backyard. And so it's a South Australian story. And I sort of pushed together two ideas that Everybody said, there's no way that's going to work. And I said, you watch me. And I've sort of crunched <laughs> them together. And, it's, and I sent it with great trepidation to my um, editor before The Spy's Wife came out, actually. And she, she, she absolutely loved it. She said, wow, you see, you can do it. You can write the Australian story. But I was very nervous about it. So now I'm in uh, draft. I'm doing the second draft of that, getting ready to hand that in. Okay. The and then as soon as Christmas is past and New Year, I will start writing the new Jack Hawksworth, which is the fourth book. And that book will be set in Australia as well because although Jack's from Scotland Yard, we're still trapped here and I need to mm. get on. And also Television Land is waiting for this fourth book because the Jack Hawksworth books have been optioned for TV. Ah, so brilliant. Yeah, thank you. They're waiting for it. So I've got to get on with that and get that written. And then I'm currently researching a book contracted with Penguin and it will be set in mostly Sydney. So I will be making lots of trips to Sydney. Fingers crossed I can get in and out really easily in the 1920s in Sydney. So Ah, brilliant. Such a great yeah. time period. I love reading things in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah, yes, time. Yep. Oh, I really look forward to reading your Australian historicals in Fiona. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'm busy at them and I'm like a hamster in a, in, in <laughs> very happy, just spinning around. <laughs> but I do want to, I do want to get overseas. I've got a couple of really big mm. ideas in particular that should have been the book for next year. It's a huge book, very, very, what's the word? I'm quite dramatic and I'm really it's the most brave one I've been, I've put myself into to try because it requires me to go to so many places it requires me to pull in people from all over the world their expertise in order for me to make it work and you know we had it all sorted and then COVID came so we just had to put it yeah. on so it'll wait for me. Well, it sounds wonderful I'm in awe of your productivity Fiona it's fantastic. Thank you. It's <laughs> very inspiring. Well, of course, in the meantime, The Spy's Wife is out. It's available on uh, audiobook, in print and in ebook. And people can find you on, pretty sure you're on both Facebook and Instagram, aren't you, Fiona? Yes, yes, they can find me, Fiona McIntosh, author, and following Fiona McIntosh on um, Instagram. And Fiona, just for anybody who might be interested who may not have known about the masterclasses, are you running any more of those next year? What's happening with them? Um, well, 2022, the April one is fully booked and has been for about a year. 
and so is the mini masterclass, but I've been persuaded by a festival director. I said it would never happen, but she said, oh, come on, please, please, please bring it out of South Australia and bring it to Queensland. So I'm shocked as well, but we're taking one to Queensland like a winter retreat. So, oh, um, fantastic. I'm hoping it will be in the hinterland. So five days in the hinterland with me, and that's already selling, and people don't even know where we're going or where they're staying. They're just booking. So it will be terrific. It will be fabulous, actually. Very inspirational surrounds. If we can pull it off, if we can't, it will be on the Gold Coast, probably at a college in beautiful grounds. So either way, I'm going to Queensland with it. So. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Where would people find out about that, Fiona? Well, they can just go to the website and just drop me a note. For, they can just email me and I will, t- I will bring them into the fold and then just keep them up to date with everything. Or they can message me on Facebook or Instagram, whatever. Just contact me and I'll take care of it from there. Brilliant. We've had lots of people saying thank you so much. It's been a great chat. Thank you to everybody for listening. Christine is carefully wrapping all your signed books to transport them safely. She's moving into state. Good luck with that, Christine. (laughs) Thank you. Good luck. Thanks so much, Fiona. Have a great night. Yes, and happy festive season, everyone. Give books. Yes, Yes, definitely. Give books. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.